0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden and one of the co-hosts of this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate case. Uh, I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst, and I am the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pins are special for our guest And for our producer, they are Politicon pins from a past Politicon live event, which I hope will resume soon. And they feature people who are talked about by our next guest. It has Nixon, John Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. And so I hope that that our guests will appreciate these as our producers
0: will. For sure. Um, You know, not many TV anchors were early members of the Peace Corps and then started their career as a Capitol Police officer, then transitioning into working for four top members of Congress. Running for a House seat, writing speeches for President Jimmy Carter, and serving as the chief of staff for the legendary Tip O'Neill, um, former Speaker of the House. Uh, it, is unique, it is with this unique background that made our guest today one of our nation's leading cable TV hosts, asking questions to some of the world's most powerful leaders that needed to be asked.
1: Those clues are probably enough for you to guess that our guest today is Chris Matthews, former host of MSNBC's Hardball, a show I was honored and privileged to be a guest on many times. Chris is also the author of a brand new book that Victor and I enjoyed very much, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Chris is also the author of numerous other books on a wide array of topics, including Bobby Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, and How Politics is Played. Chris, we are so glad to have you with us today, and we can't wait for the audience to get to know you
0: and more about your latest book. All right, so let's get started. So we're we're so grateful to have you here with us, um, Chris. And you you start your book by describing your um, fascination with politics and how it started at quite a young age when your family visited Washington, D.C. Describe that moment when young Chris Matthews thought about politics and how it has impacted everything since then.
2: Well, curiosity is hard to you know, to uh, plum to plumb, it's hard to get to the bottom of your curiosity. I mean, uh, I do remember sitting in a movie theater back when people went to the movies a couple of times a week, practically back in the early fifties, this would be early 52. And I must've been about six. And I was sitting next to my dad who, who had a, where he was a court reporter. So he could take off some time, different days, weird days. So he would get downtown and go to the movies with him. And, um, and they had the newsreels in those days. The big newsreels would come on. And there was a high-ranking military guy. And, of course, my brother Bert and I were huge about World War II. We were always playing war games and everything. And, uh, and one, this impressive-looking high-ranking officer came boarding a plane or getting off a plane. And I asked my dad, who was sitting to my right, is he president? And my dad says, nobody will be. And it was Dwight Eisenhower. So that's sort of my first... Uh, Sort of experience in in seeing a big shot politician in action and and getting the fill on what my dad's view of the guy because my dad said it positively he's republican and he uh, well a lot of people were becoming republican in fifty two after twenty years of the Democrats in harry truman so uh yeah that's my first so I do know I was catching on and i of course I rooted for Eisenhower as a kid in school uh, I remember another kid named michael matthews who's Father was the democratic committeeman and he was rooting for Stevenson. I felt sorry for him. And, uh, and I think that was the beginning. And it went on through uh, you know, the, the Hungarian revolt against the Russians. I remember that very clearly rooting for the Hungarians when they threw cobblestones at the uh, tanks, the, the, the uh, you know, the, 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 what do they call them? The uh, Warsaw Pact countries had come in to sort of shut down their revolution. And of course, the Cuban revolution, all these international events were driving my interest in politics. I was never big on local sewer projects or local politics. I was always about the big picture, where we stood in the world and where the federal government fit in our lives. And I was pretty conservative about that, libertarian. Um, And uh, well, there we are. It
1: it was so interesting listening to that, Chris, because I grew up in a democratic family and my first politics was when I was in third grade and Adlai Stevenson lost. And I cried. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I understand that family. I get your family. I know the values. You know, he was the eloquent, thoughtful, uh, good liberal. He was not very left. Uh, and he right. was a practical guy. You know, they, the Republicans made him into an egghead because he was bald. And they made him into a sort right. of a lefty professor type. But he wasn't at all like that. I mean, it, he was a... A product of the Chicago machine, you know, Jake Arvey picked him for that job, picked Paul Douglas for U.S. Senate. In those days, the old corrupt machines would pick high high quality candidates in
1: the back room. It was a system that worked back then. And uh, because Victor and I are from Chicago, we certainly appreciate it.
0: And I appreciate it extra because my high school was named after Stevenson, Adelaide Stevenson High School. Um, but, you know, unlike Jill and like you, Chris, my parents are Republicans. And I'm wondering what it was like for you to grow up in a Republican household.
2: Well, my dad was a cloth coat Republican. That's an old Nixon term, but he was not rich. He had worked for the city and uh, he worked hard. We we're middle, middle people living in a nice house in the suburbs, right on the city limits. Uh, we all got to go to Private Catholic school. We had we had braces for our teeth. We had piano lessons. We had a house to the shore. We lived very well because my parents were very safe. They threw, as they say, masters. They threw half dollars around like manhole covers. They did not spend. They did not spend money. They never went. They never. My dad never bought a coke on the way home from work. Never. He would buy a bulletin and read the paper. Uh, he never wasted money. Never went to a nightclub. We never had steaks. They were really classic, self reliant good Republicans. They, they they believe in less government, less interference in our lives, less taxes, but he didn't believe in Social Security and those basics. So I think he was a classic sort of Pennsylvania Republican. And, um, and they're all gone now, almost all, that Republican crowd. Uh, he wasn't in the party for tax bracket, you know. So uh, I would say our parents were very conservative. You know, we couldn't go to certain dances. Uh, we couldn't, uh, well, mainly because we were Catholic and they didn't want us going to the Episcopalian dance on a Friday night. <laughs> so, so they were watching the sort of the tribal door there, you know. Uh, but I would say um, they were suspicious of big city politics. They took the view that big cities like Philadelphia were corrupt and uh, that they had to overcome a big uh, popular vote disadvantage coming out of the city. They had to win it in the country, in the suburbs. And the, and the rest of the state. So I grew up in a you know Bill Scranton, uh, Tom Ridge type of place. Um, my dad even voted for Goldwater because he's a Republican, and uh, he was pretty loyal to that party. In fact, we were, were Catholic. He was a convert convert to Catholicism, and I only found out recently that my mom voted for Kennedy in 1960, and never told Dad her whole life. Her nev- She never told dad that she voted for Kennedy for fear it would upset him. Isn't that interesting?
0: No, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, and you mentioned that you began as an avid Nixon and, and Goldwater supporter, yet, you know, you ended up working for Democrats your whole career. And I'm wondering how your values and political outlook changed throughout your years or if at all they changed.
2: You know, emotionally, I think it was the Kennedy assassination, which I think is very hard for somebody of your generation to, to understand the, and, and the, the, the power of that. I mean, here's a guy who I thought was extremely interesting. I thought he was a bit ruthless in the sense of they, when they knocked off ZM, President ZM, who Kennedy had been for since the 50s. He had been a friend of Vietnam and supported ZM, President ZM. And, and we definitely had a hand in that coup which ended up costing that ZM and his, his brother's life. But I always said, when Kennedy was killed, I just can't explain to you the emotion of it to me. And maybe because I was on the other side politically, just, it hit me very hard. And it's still a thing I, I think about more than 9-11 or January 6th, to me, that was the great, I don't know, tumult of my emotions. I just, you know, all of a sudden the president of the United States, an hour later, he's not president of the United States, he's gone, he's gone as Julius Caesar, he's gone. He's not, a, he doesn't exist. This guy who was the center of all conversation and all romance and politics. And uh, we picked him. And it didn't matter that we picked him. I think that was the big message to me. You could you can choose a president, but you can't guarantee you're gonna get that president. And of course we live in a violent country. We've had since 1860, almost every 20 years we've lost a president through violence. And Harry Truman almost got, got killed, and Teddy Roosevelt almost got killed, and FDR almost got killed by gunfire. Um, but I think that was a big change. Vietnam, of course, but the you know, civil rights, of course. But one of the ironies of history, Jill knows this, the ironies of history is that the Republican Party provided most of the votes for the Civil Rights Act in the US Senate. You know, Everett Dirksen, Illinois, they provided the votes. It wasn't the Southern, the Democratic Party was in bed with the segregationists. And they've been playing that game since certainly the New Deal. Maybe, well, back to the Civil War, of course. And uh, you had John Sparkman running on the the Democratic ticket with Stevenson, who was an outright segregationist from Alabama. I mean, think about that today. It's awful. And uh, it was the Republicans who were the liberal. Nixon was a pro member of the NAACP. A Quaker, believed in civil rights, tried to get rid of the filibuster in 1957 as vice president. And it was the liberal Democrats who stayed in league with the Southern Democrats and killed his chance, his, his move to get rid of the filibuster. So there are a lot of dirty hands on that thing, not just from the South. They were playing ball with, with partisan politics. You know? So I, I turned because of the Vietnam War, because of civil rights, because of uh. Kennedy assassination, but I would say the emotion was with the
1: Kennedy assassination. And, and the general politics of your generation and mine, um, is that what drove you to get involved in government in some capacity?
2: Yeah, when, you, when I came back from the Peace Corps in Africa, I finally worked my way home. I wasn't draft eligible anymore. My number was I had a number through the roof, like 312 in the draft. You're not getting anywhere near the draft with a number like that. And, uh, but when you came to Capitol Hill, you were defined by your hair length. If you had long hair, longish hair, you can't get a job in a, in a conservative Democrat or Republican office or, but you could in the anti-war offices like Hatfield or maybe Percy, you know? So there were anti-war Republicans or John Sherman Cooper. So it was all defined by the war. I remember going into a Southerners looking for a Southerner Congressman. I was desperate looking for a job and he, and he finally said, I think if you worked in my office, people would get the idea that you were uh, had some idealism that you brought back from the Peace Corps. Idealism, meaning I wasn't a racist. <laughs> That's what he meant. And it was so flagrant. And he said, I'm sure with, with your long hair and your, your hairstyle, he called it, and your uh, way of speaking, meaning fast, you could probably find some northern guy that would hire you, which in fact... Didn't happen, but I got a job with another guy from out West, but Frank Moss from Utah. But um, yeah, it was all defined. It was all defined by the war and your position on the war. It was in your hair, it was in the way you dressed. I mean, it was just, it, was, it wasn't partisan politics, it was war politics.
1: So I, I wanna go to a couple things that you've mentioned now. One is the Peace Corps because you were um, a, a volunteer with the Peace Corps in its infancy and you yeah. went to Swaziland right after graduating college at Holy Cross. And what made you decide to go to the Peace Corps? And did you have a particular interest in Swaziland? Or how did you end up there?
2: Well, I really loved, well, when I was in PA. I was actually I had done a year of grad school at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, right before. And I was working on a PhD and I had a full ride. I mean, a real full ride. I, they were paying for everything. And um, I wanted to go into economic Development. I want to do third world development. I, I, I imagine myself somewhere in a third world country working with economic planners and doing something big, big ticket like that. And I didn't, I applied to the Peace Corps. I got an offer to a job in Venezuela, a job in Kenya, dealing with water projects. They said, This isn't what I wanted to do mentally. I want to do something somewhat mental. Uh, so, and something that would use my education. And all, all of a sudden, this African American kid comes in to see me. He's walking around campus and he comes up to, and we somehow hook up and he hands me a brochure. It's like a, a lot like real estate lots in Arizona or something. It's a brochure about going to Swaziland and working in this new government program of small business development, getting local people involved in the local commerce. Basically, the commerce was controlled by Indians, and by the white people, the, the expats. But uh, they wanted the black Africans to be, uh, get a bigger role in the economy. So I said, that's perfect. That's what I want to do. So I, I mean, I'm a Hemingway buff, Tarzan buff as a kid, of course, back in those days. I wanted to go to Africa. Africa is where I wanted to go, you know, and, um, and I got in. They said you needed an MBA. And I, I convinced them that a the year of grad school was equivalent to an MBA, which it's not. But I convinced them of that. And uh, I got in. And it was great. And I was lucky, the best thing I ever had, Jim was the best thing I ever did in my life. Didn't understand economics, just, I went into economics because it was about philosophy. It was about John Stuart Mill and and Adam Smith and Marx and all that, you know, it was all about ideas and the individual and society. And I said, that's what excited me about economics. It wasn't the highly quantitative stuff that I get into at grad school, which I didn't have any interest in. But Africa was exciting to me and I mean, I was 22 and I went over there and I came back in 25, I was 25. So I spent a good chunk of my youth, my young adulthood in Africa, riding around in a motorcycle uh, in this, in, in the belt, in the bush veld, with the escarpment in the distance, just like in Tarzan, the escarpment along the horizon. And I'm out there as the only white guy in sight, or even in memory of a lot of these people I was working with. And they were wonderful to me. These guys are about, uh, probably in their 40s or 50s or old. These guys treated me like their kid. They were great. And i had sword courses. I organized a national industrial fair I put together. Um, and I also got to do some hitchhiking. I hitchhiked all the way to Koenjara from Swaziland. Look at the map. It's pretty impressive with my thumb out. <laughs> my thumb. That was my travel method all the way through East Africa. So then I came back and looked for a job. I wanted to be Ted Sorensen. I wanted to be a speechwriter to a president. That's what I wanted to do, and I got to do it. I got the Jimmy
1: Carter speech. Okay, we're right going to get it. to that. Uh, let, let's stick a little bit with Swaziland and it sounds like in addition to teaching, you were learning while you were there. Uh, can you talk to our audience a little bit about what you learned about culture? Well,
2: yeah, I think you got to learn about humanity that uh, as much as people are different in appearance, obviously, and in uh culture, religion uh We're humans. It's just imagine if you're on a desert island and somebody shows up, you're really not going to complain about what they're like. You're just thrilled that somebody showed up. You know, it's just true. And uh, they're company, they're good company. And uh, I got to know people individually, which I think is the Peace Corps dream. I wrote that in the book. I said, you know, getting to know people personally is what the Peace Corps is about and and bridging the cultural gaps and uh, being able to be with somebody. And uh, I also discovered that nationalism is not unique to the United States by any means. We are a nationalistic country. Uh, even liberals are nationalists. We're all not liberal. We all love this country. And we and we think it is special. And we're very jealous of any attempt to screw with us. And Africans are just the same way. Swazis, they, they would take, they knew the British were pretty efficient in running their country. I'm sure they knew that, you know. The buildings were better kept up. The farming was more advanced. There's all reasons that colonialism has its case, but you ask anybody who's been under colonialism, anybody who's been ruled by a colonial power, and they'll say, we don't want that again. We'll take anything we can get from our own people. We are absolute nationalists. So you, you I once kidded a guy about being in the CIA. I said, of course, you know I'm in the CIA. Like Sarcasm isn't so easy to translate to other cultures. <laughs> he said, never say that again. Never say that again, because he didn't understand. I don't know if sarcasm may be unique to our culture, the British maybe too, but it doesn't travel well, but uh, they're very, very nationalistic about the Swazi people. and um, So I think that's the other thing I learned that uh, we're a big country. Those are small countries, but they have just as much spirit about their country as we do just
1: as much. You mentioned your, your hair. And I think, your whole book is written in such a very conversational tone and is so wonderful and, and delightful to read but i loved your description of when you came back and had to get a buzz cut basically in order to have your job
0: i mean i i actually was scrolling through the pictures which were amazing And um, one picture seems to show how long his hair was yeah uh, i think that's a side shot of you in swaziland but i mean
2: well, I mean, our Peace Corps director would give us trouble about that. He'd say, distinguish yourselves in ways that are significant. Don't just have long hair to make some sort of stupid lefty point, you know. But the fact is, trying to find a barber over there, I think I finally found one, and he just cut up all my hair. It was like the army. Uh, the girl I was going out with at the time was kind of surprised by that. <laughs> not, impo- not positively either. Uh, but um, yeah, hair was there. I mean, we were a little bit probably uh uh what was the right word too casual about that because i think the african people i worked with knew this hair was not common in america to have long hair but uh, they didn't care that much there's too many other differences to sort of get around and uh, we were 60s people this is like this is like 69 something there's no way in the world you could have short hair that you know there are a lot of other rules that were broken over there when i was there which i'll not go into uh, but I, uh, it was the 60s. It was the music. It was everything. And uh, fortunately, nobody drank too much. That was sort of interesting. There wasn't a drinking problem. I, I, I'm telling you, that was one good side effect of the 60s. People didn't drink a lot. They did other things. <laughs> I, I, I still was a casual drinker, and I was a, uh, I'm not big on the other pastimes that some of the other guys were into, but
0: that's me. You know, you mentioned in your book that you urge everyone to make the most of their 20s. And as someone who is close to being 20 and because our podcast has listeners about that age, talk to us more about why that's such a critical moment of our lives and how to make the most of it as, as you did.
2: Well, I think it's, it's more possible after school, if you don't have too much debt to pay off right away, to, to, to do something wild. And uh, for, some, for some people, the military experience is good. For some it is, leadership ability and all that stuff. And I, I think that's good for some people. They have, to, there's a phrase called a good war, even horrendous wars, people, some get through it all right. Uh, I think travel is great. I do think that uh, being a tourist is one thing. Uh, uh, somehow hitchhiking around is a great way to meet people. Hitchhiking is amazing. The, the, we came across, when we were in Africa, we'd always meet West Germans and, uh, and Australians. They are They just seen that these two countries just make a practice of getting away from, especially Australians, get out of the country. They're so far away from everybody else in the world, They're, their own continent. that get out there and meet, see the world. And it, before you come back and become a dentist or whatever else you're going to do, you know, you're going to become a doctor, or whatever you're going to do, a business person, but get out there first while you still can to see the world. Because, you know, it's not just adventure, it's uh, courage. And, you know, look at the people we look up to in our lives. I mean, Churchill escaping from the Boers. In fact, he escaped right near where I was. I, was I look at it on the map and I say, well, that's where Churchill snuck on that train ride to, to, to Lorenzo Marx to uh, Portuguese, East Africa. Or, you know, uh, or John Kennedy in PT-109. Or Hedris Hemingway getting injured as an ambulance driver in Italy in World War One. I. I think you need some adventure in your life. And you got to pack it into your 20s. And uh, luckily, you'll get through it. But if you don't go through it, you have nothing to savor, nothing to say when you have a beer or something or smoke a cigar or something in the middle of the night and you're thinking about Swaziland. I'm telling you, you are. You know that Kipling one? Come ye back, ye soldier boy. Come ye back, to Mandalay. You know? You have to have that memory. And I, I'm a big romantic about that. If you can, if you can get through something adventurous, alive. Uh, you're better off than the, you know, I see, I sense that when I tell these stories to like a dentist working on mean, you can tell this guy went right to dental school, went right to work, and never did anything else. You know, these, most people do that. They go right to business school, law school, and they get right into a, the, the partnership track and they never do anything in their lives except do this one thing. And maybe that's the smart thing to do, but it's not a, very much fun. It's not life. Life has to have an arc. And I think one of the first per, first stages of the arc it's adventure and possibly some guts. And it's fascinating. I mean, I, I, it's also what it's distinguished this year.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was just about to say, Jill has told me all about her adventures and it's been so amazing to hear like her jumping off of planes and, and on everything that she's done. So I, I think adventure and uncertainty and like embracing those aspects of life Um, are definitely important lessons for um, young people. But I just want to move on and talk about, you know, after the Peace Corps, you took your political ambition to um, D.C. and described kind of desperately looking for a job on the Hill and said it was tough and you got a lot of rejections. I'm wondering, first, what made you want to keep going? And then also, perhaps second, um, how do young people also maintain that type of zeal um, and and kind of face rejection?
2: Well, I just to... to have a teaching moment here. When I was looking for a job, that Southern congressman from uh, Jim Collins from Texas, uh, he said to me after he rejected me, he said to follow, he said, I used to sell insurance, I guess life insurance, door to door. And here's what I learned as a rule of thumb. If I went to 100 doors, knocked on 100 doors, usually the wife is home. This is in the 50s. Uh, I get nine invitations back to meet the husband. And if I got nine invitations back, which I regularly got out of, 10, out of 100, I would get three sales. So to get the three sales, you have to have nine meetings. To get the nine meetings, you have to knock on 100 doors, which is the rule there is some people are going to go for your act and some are not. And in life, some people are going to like you the minute they meet you. And, and I think a lesser number are just not going to like you. Either they're competing with you, you're different than them, or whatever it is, they're just not going to be helpful. In fact, they may be an adversary, but you will meet people that are going to go for you. I always look at Bill Clinton this way. Bill Clinton spends his life knowing that half the country probably almost doesn't like him. They don't like him because of Monica, because of his wife, because of him, because his party or his manner, his self-confidence. They just don't like him. And he doesn't care because he knows 40 to 50% of the country really likes him. And he walks in their room and he glories in it. He can do this. You can't expect unanimous consent from society. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to accept it. But once you've accepted it, you are free because you recognize when you walk down the street, when those people say hello to you, come up to you if you're in public life, go with them. Forget the other people. Go with the ones that like it. Do, be nice to them. Help them. The kind, you know, be with them. Enjoy their friendship. And uh, take the job they offer you. Because the other guy's not going to offer you a job. So my experience has been learned the hard way. When I came to Capitol Hill, there was no big terrorist threat, although so there was the bombing of the Capitol. You could still walk in the door. You could still walk around with resumes. You could still go door to door. You could pick out a list of. I started with all the Irish guys, Irish American guys. I was quite open about it. I went the Irish American guy. I didn't get anywhere with them. Uh, then I worked with uh, other Democrats, and then I went for moderate anti-war Republicans. And then I went anywhere. But I ended up getting a job with a nice liberal senator from Utah, and I got the job as Capitol policeman at nighttime under his patronage if I'd work in the office from around 11 in the morning to around 3, writing answers to complicated mail, trying to learn how to write a speech. And then about three months later, I got the full-time black slave assistant job because I kept pushing for it. Uh, but not everybody does it this way. I remember a guy who saw me in my police uniform, and he said, it, is, it that, or is it that bad? Like, this is the worst thing you can do. It's become a cop, you know. But wasn't that bad for me. I said, fine, I'll do this. If this is what it takes, you know. I didn't have any money left. The Peace Corps didn't make me rich, by the way. So I came back with very little money. And I finally was almost out of money. And I took the job that was available. And I, did. was no going back from that. It was a smart move.
0: I mean, in, in describing how you got that job, use the term patronage. And I, I think that's a word that my generation doesn't know, or at least I didn't know kind of what patronage meant. Can you describe patronage? In-
2: it means every job on Capitol Hill, there's 12,000 jobs up there. Every one of them is controlled almost directly by an elected official. And I- it- now now there's a, something of a civil service- type environment around the police, but generally the police are much more professional, obviously. But uh, yeah, like the guy who run the printer down, down the basement, the, people, the barbers, the barbers, the people that have the franchises for the dining rooms and the, and the snack bars and all that, the coffee people, uh, everything, the beauty salons, everything is up, and it ought to be. This is the legislative branch of government. It's up to elected officials, so uh, they delegate some delegate some of that power. But when I went up there, it was like a plantation. I said, "You can live on this hill. You can get your hair cut here. You can go. You can have a credit union account. And you can eat here all day. You can probably sleep in your room. You, this place is pretty self supporting. But it's all based on who the boss is and who you owe your job to. And if you forget that, you're in trouble. You got to always. And that, the trouble with that." it creates a sort of a manipulative environment where people come there in their young years, in their 20s, and they learn how to manipulate the system all the time sucking up to the person that they're working for, but not necessarily doing the public's business. They just know how to work these people. And so the patronage system has that problem of sycophancy. You just learn how to be, how to serve at the pleasure of the boss. And that doesn't mean your character's gonna be... So I had, I think I said in the book that... Uh, if you don't come to Capitol Hill with a good character, you're not going to learn one there. It's not the place to learn values. Politics, you do not learn your values in politics. You have to bring your values to politics. That's what I believe. It's too easy to play the game. I can say the same of the media, by the way, Jill. Say about the media. Not everybody develops great values, which is teaching truth, which is what your job is. Not to sell an argument with the Teach
0: the truth, all of it. Uh, So I want to ask you more about your your Capitol Police job, because um, at first glance, I wouldn't guess that you were a Capitol Police, but you were a Capitol Police um, officer. And um, given what happened on January 6th, how did it make you feel to be a part of that same law enforcement at the Capitol um, when it was under attack and having worked for so many members that the police were now defending?
2: Well, the cameras, the camera work, We're a victim of the evidence as it came in. And as it came in, it made it look like the cops were collaborating in some cases. Well, later on, we got better pictures and we realized that they were being incredibly courageous and standing up against this. The the failure was at the top, the failure to provide them with ride gear. Now, when I was a cop, and by the way, the short answer, I felt violated. I hated what I saw those those goofy people, idiots. Uh, with their costumes and their horns on and everything, running around, defiling the place. Uh, I, I felt that way because I was an AA top eight of the speaker and because I worked up there for all those years in the Senate, and off and on for 15 years. I hated what I saw. I was proud of that building. I was proud of the fact that Lincoln gave his second inaugural there, or they, they passed the Civil Rights Bill in, in 64 there. A lot of amazing things happened. They debated slavery back in the 50s, the It's an It's a cathedral to democracy. It's where it all comes together, our system. But uh, I felt that uh, I, felt I lost my thought. I had, I had a lot of feelings about that place. And, uh, and I thought that uh, back in 1971, when I was a cop, there was a big May Day demonstration against the Vietnam War, mostly college kids, not particularly dangerous, but college kids, anti-war, 12,000 showed up. In fact, a friend of mine from the Peace Corps I found out later was in that group. He got field arrested. Um, they all got hauled down to this RFK stadium. It was amazing mass arrests of people. But in addition to planning who they're going to arrest and how they're going to handle on-site field arrests, they also had a field force within the Capitol building, which they kept in reserve. And I saw these guys. They're men. They're wearing riot gear. They had shields. They had helmets. They, would go to war. they were ready to go to war. The crowd got out of hand. And they had them in reserve. They never used them. But they were there in case something broke. Now, why didn't they do that on January 6th? Why didn't the leaders of the Capitol Police, the sergeants in arms, the leaders of Congress, Democrat and Republican, Pelosi and Mitch uh, and, uh, McConnell, why didn't they provide, a, provide for, a, a, a reserve force, cavalry on the hill, if you will? Why didn't they do that? Why weren't they ready? They knew trouble was coming, and uh, they could have done that without intimidating the crowd at all. They could have done it, and then when they per- tried to break through the doors, these people would have rushed to the doors with shields and their helmets, and they would have repel them. They may have batted a bat few heads. They should have carried nightsticks. too. So you don't have to carry guns. Nightsticks will do the job. Just push them out of the building, and none of this would have happened. But they didn't have a reserve force. They didn't have a contingency plan because the leadership at the top betrayed their trust, they really did, they didn't do the job. And they, and they left it to the rank and file officers in their daily civil usual uniforms to hold back this crowd. And I think they did an amazing effort to try to do it and they couldn't do it because they weren't led, well, they weren't led. And that's a that's problem of any business or, you know, you have lifeboats on ships, you know, you have a reserve. I mean, this is how things work, you know. You have systems on elevators that they broke that they don't just go to the basement. You know, it's just, this is how you build things and, and provide for some. And I didn't think they provided the leadership they should have. So that's what I felt, didn't do the job at the top. But I am glad that most of the cops did their job because I did think, I remember a guy working with a guy who said to me, I'd die for this bully when I was working with him. So uh, the patriotism on, on most,
0: in most cases was to me manifest. I mean, it was a real display of courage. And I'm and, and wondering what you think is the best way to uh, like honor those police officers who protected members of Congress that day. And I guess what it says to you that Republicans um, won't honor them by passing a commission or um, investigating what happened on January 6th or awarding them with uh, congressional CYA,
2: because it's CYA. They're covering their ass. They, they didn't do their job. And, and it was their president, their political leader, Donald Trump, who sparked the whole thing, go to Capitol Hill, raise hell. Well, I don't know if we'll ever find out how much detail he had from the uh, from the the real troublemakers or not. I don't know, but he certainly inspired them. And uh, in his name, and to this day, three out of ten Republicans believe that uh, he'll be reinstated August first. Well, that's coming up. That's five weeks from now. What kind of trouble is that going to brew, ignite? We don't know, but if if 3 out of 10 Republicans think he's going to be reinstated, they're going to be wrong. There's no word. In fact, I don't think you can do a Google check on the word reinstatement in the U.S. Constitution. You're not going to come up with it. It's not a word that they used back in, in, in the late uh, 18th, century. I, 18th century. I don't think they used the word reinstated uh, a president. You
0: know, it's,
1: but he's telling them that stuff. In your book, you related to this, you write about um, one of the first lessons that you learned working for Senator Moss is that the greatest politicians are those who stand alone when everyone else is either bucking or ducking. And I think what you're referring to is the fact that there are so few politicians, at least uh, on the Republican side, who are willing to stand alone right now. And I'm wondering if you agree with that and. What, what do you think could change that? How can we get members of the Congress to stand up and speak the truth?
2: Well, this is something that scares me about our our political culture, and that's uh, the docility with which people behave these days. Uh, you know, you look at the 30s, you look at Germany, Japan, I suppose. You look at those countries. Look how people just cheering the war hawks, cheering the people want war. We're thrilled by it. They're cheering the leaders of their countries because they're taking them to war. They're thrilled by it. They're, uh, they're open to any charge that the Poles invaded Germany. Are you kidding me? Did they actually believe in that case? White? They believe the argument that, that Hitler was able to convince his people that they were invaded by Poland and that's why they invaded Poland. I mean, people willing to accept anything in this sort of hysteria. Uh, the belief that Trump will come back in August, or uh, that elections were stolen wholesale in three or four states, really? I know somebody that was yesterday he believes that stuff. Uh, how can you believe that? These, uh, these elections are decided by 50,000 votes, 70,000 votes. I mean, th- th- you can talk about a case or that in some precinct somewhere in Chicago or some Philadelphia state Senate district where somebody did something they shouldn't. But uh, the idea of uh, elections being stolen. They don't get stolen in this country. It doesn't happen. We don't have evidence of it. And we should believe in our system. And to have somebody running around like this ex-president telling everybody we have rigged elections, I think it's the worst they've ever seen. I mean, the founding fathers forgot one thing. They they didn't imagine that there'd be a person, man or woman, Republican or Democrat or whatever, who would actually lie about election results, who would actually run for president, serve as president, in fact, and then say the elections are rigged. Who wouldn't give a concession speech, which is a critical thing. Kennedy needed Nixon to say he won the election. And Nixon said, okay, you won. You know there are questions about Chicago. You know questions are questions about Texas. But he said, this country cannot be undercut by suspicions about who's president. And Nixon met with him down in Key Biscayne. And I just wrote an article about this and sat with him drinking Cokes for all the photographers around and made it very clear Kennedy had won the election. Because we were in a Cold War situation, and you can't just mess things up like that by saying I'm not conceding. And Al Gore conceded his election, even after winning the popular vote by a half million. Hillary Clinton won by four million votes in the popular vote, and she conceded the next morning. She didn't wait for two days or three days. She said, "I lost." That was noble and honest and good. This guy, Trump, doesn't have an in. him, doesn't have it in him to show character, even to pretend character. He won't even say the obvious. And he's got these fools serving him, these people that are willing to carry out. I mean, Kevin McCarthy's an embarrassment. He knows better. He actually has said that Joe Biden won the election, but he will not take on Trump. But Liz Cheney, of all people, and I disagree with her, disagree with her dad, certainly about the Iraq war. She should should have shown a profile and courage. There's no doubt about it. And I'm willing to say that whatever differences we have I'm no neocon, I'm no hawk, but she's standing alone out there in Wyoming and she has to take on a primary opponent. If she's lucky, you know how the game played. If she has two opponents, she'll probably win. If she has one opponent, it's going to be tough. But she's going to fight this battle.
1: Now, well, I, I hope we get, get back to a time when we have more people who are willing to stand up and speak the truth. And um, you certainly have throughout your career. One thing people may not know in our That's audience right. is that after you uh, left the Senate working as a staffer, you ran for a seat in the House from Pennsylvania. And you wanted young people. Yeah.
2: Well, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money, but I, I did have a cause, which was money in politics. I, had, I went around. I had a woman, wonderful woman in Maryland, Funk, who was on her way to going, going into the Peace Corps. They did later go into the Peace Corps. Just had the nerve to call up all the high schools in, uh, in a district, north, northeastern Philadelphia, Catholic and public, there was a huge Catholic school population back then, and allowed for me to speak in their civic classes. And I came in and do a sort of a Billy Graham kind of speech, call to arms about evils of money and politics. And I said, the kids, do you want to get rid of money and politics? You be the big shots. You volunteer. We'll do this together. And uh, they did. I, they came back to the back of the room and filled out these index cards. Next thing I know, I had a campaign. I'd go out in the main Boulevard in Philadelphia, at Roosevelt Boulevard, and they'd all stand there waving and honking wave signs, get people to blow their horns when they go by, and I'm waving, and my family members are waving. And we did shopping malls, and during the week, I'd be doing supermarkets, and we got some literature finally done. It was really good. And I got some notice in the papers the Philadelphia Inquirer. We put on a good, we had a quarter of the vote against the machine. I felt at the end of it, like I'd let these kids down, that they thought I was going to win. I knew it was a long shot. And they were thrilled that they had done it. And I still have the spiral notebooks of these kids and the, how they handled different voting stations, how we covered them all. And it could be, it can be done. Well, I mean, losing isn't great, but it didn't hurt anybody. And uh, I thought it was inspiring. And I think, I hope all these kids remember that experience and said, yeah, I worked in a campaign once. Maybe them went on to other campaigns, but, uh, I'm just glad I did. It's like everything I've done. I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm glad I went to the Peace Corps. I'm certainly glad I ran for Congress. I'm certainly glad I knocked on doors on Capitol Hill. And uh, I'm also glad I finally went into journalism, which is maybe where I belong. But I do feel that pull back and forth between politics and journalism
1: still. And you wouldn't accept political contributions when you were running for office.
2: Well, can I give you the honest answer? It wasn't in the book. I didn't know anybody that would give me any money. (laughs) <laughs> i i wasn't hooked in with any big shots we didn't know any big shots in our family i didn't know who who would you who these people with money i can imagine going to somebody and say can i have a hundred bucks a thousand bucks I, who would i go to i didn't know the list today i could do it but you know um uh, i was an outsider i was a regular nobody and uh but the, the Nader, Nader connect, connection made it Ralph Nader was a god back then. He was a consumer advocate. He was a challenger of the system, a reformer. It turns out a real man of the left, but very clean, very clean. Definitely an idolatry, but very clean. And um, he was an inspiration to a lot of people in those days. And I worked for him briefly.
1: But you you ended up choosing, after that, you decided to be a speech writer. Yeah. And you got a job with President right. Carter who I also was honored to work for. Um, and I got my job through networking. Um, Sarge Shriver and Pat Harris had been partners of mine. And um, one of the Watergate defendants' wives was on the transition team, and she was the one who really connected me. But so how did you get connected to Jimmy Carter? Well,
2: sounds like you. I uh, I had worked in a Brooklyn campaign with a guy named Bob Shepard, who's still a friend of mine. He's the one who's hooked me up with uh, Fulbright University of Vietnam right now are, I'm a professor out there now in Ho Chi Minh City I'm going back again early next year I'm teaching class he got me involved with Rick Hertzberg who's a New Yorker writer who had become one of the speech to President Carter we, Rick and I became friends we're still great friends and uh, and when the time came to get it they had an opening and I pushed, pushed somebody else for one opening and there's another opening I said well how about me Rick and uh, they gave me a tryout and I was working at the White House at the time. I was working on Jimmy Carter's reorganization project, his pet project to reform the federal government uh, and streamlined it. Um, and then I, uh, they, they gave me a tryout because they didn't think I had proven myself in the background as a speechwriter. So luckily the, the, the National Catholic Charities meeting was coming up and Carter was speaking to them. And I was, I think the only Catholic on the, uh, on the, in, the, in, the, in sight in the White House. So I got to write that speech, and I knew how to write it. So I got the job after that. So it's a combination of connections and ability, I suppose, some kind of ability. But it's all—it's all followed, you know. I, I was going out with a girl, a woman at the time, who told me about the White House job, the first White House job I got, and I went into the interview, and I got that job, and. Um, you know, people give me ideas. You know, I was in a peace court and I got a call from a guy a couple of years ahead of me at Holy Cross College where I went. And he said, in his letter to me, I got the idea, you know, because he hadn't finished law school. He had quit law school to do this job as a legislative assistant. I said, my guy, you can be a legislative assistant without going to law school. I'm going. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to do this thing. So you pick up information along the way uh, that you use, that you put the way you
1: use, put the use. I think networking is one of the greatest skills that people, particularly young people, um, don't learn. And I've been trying to teach Victor a little bit more about it. But you also said that. Oh, let
2: me tell you what advice, Victor. When you graduate from school, college or whatever, make sure you keep your friends. Try to keep a dozen up, even if you got to work at it. But I mean, keep up with them. Tell them what you're doing. Because sometimes, sometimes, an opportunity is going to come along to that network of people that's going to fit you. They may need a lawyer. They may need a accountant. They may need whatever. Uh, they may need a PR person. They may need, and then I said, there's a job I just heard about. It's not for me, but I think it's perfect for you. And you've got to get a wider net. And if you sit at home in your basement dreaming of what you want to do, nobody's coming to knock on the door. I've told this to everybody. Nobody's coming and knocking on the door of your house or apartment and say, I hear you'd like to do this never happens. It will never, ever happen. So you have to go out. And then Woody Allen's great phrase, show up. You have to show up and you have to network. And that's the only way it works. And not everybody has the personality for that. But I I could do it. Anybody could do it. Just got to meet people and make connections. And because jobs are only open for like two weeks. And if you, you have to show your head in that two-week period, and the only way you do that is try a lot of places. I hope that you're up during one of those two-week periods because when somebody leaves a job, the boss is feverish to fill the job, and they think about who they know that's looking for it. And then if somebody, oh, yeah, that guy's been coming around here days looking for a job, let's try him out or her out. It's a lot like that. It's, um, it's opportunism.
1: Exactly. And you said, though, that speech writing for President Carter was one of your favorite jobs ever. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, imagine you're sitting on Air Force One. That's all I have to say to you. So just imagine being on Air
2: Force One. And uh, Selectric 2, electric typewriter, the old style. And you're taking off at 45 degrees because that's how the Air Force planes take off, 45 degrees, right up in the air. And you're typing sort of diagonally. <laughs> and you know that when you're writing it's something to be the president of the United States is going to give it the next stop. Come on, I don't have to describe, I just have to describe. You don't like that, you don't like anything. of it. It's fun, it was fun. And uh, flying around, and, and even before I got on the plane, there was working in the executive office but next to the White House, the West Wing, in a big cube of a room, a beautiful room with my perfect desk which was really a table. And I'm knocking out speeches for the president. I loved it, going to lunch at the White House mess, talking the scuttlebutt with the big shots, um telling people you worked at the white house (laughs) i mean my wife my wife's roommates my future wife's roommate cat we've been married 41 years now together 43 years they 1978 when i came to pick her up for the first date after about three weeks of trying to get a hold of her i'm trying to get a date her roommates called me white house (laughs) (laughs) exactly so so there's no problem with that Um, that was a great story. That's a chapter on her in the book, but
0: not Kathy. So, you know, after working for the Carter administration, you worked for the legendary Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, as chief of staff. Um, what was it like to be under the wing of Tip O'Neill?
2: Have you had a really hard job in your life, Victor? A really hard job, a really frightening job. That's what it was like. Tip O'Neill accepted no failure. Something went wrong. It was somebody's fault. If you, he had won 50 straight elections and primaries, he had no time for any mistakes. If you did something wrong, you spoke out of turn. You, it was it was menacing to do He was so tough, and he was six foot three, weighed about 280. He would stand right in your face and look you right in the face if he if, he, if he wanted to challenge you. It was a definite challenge to word for him. But he. You know, in the end, after six years of being his wartime consigliere and fighting Reagan, I, uh, he wrote the most amazing notes for me. He said, uh, best in the business. That was my favorite. Best in the business. And um, thanks for building my image. And even though I had the top title, the minister of assistant, as a statutory position, he said to me. It was, in other words, an act of Congress created this position. I was really his uh, wartime communications guy. My job was the write his stuff and, uh, and get him into battle every morning. And he was great. He was courageous, big liberal guy, out of fashion, but willing to go to work every day and do the job of taking on Reagan. And when he could, make a deal with him. He made some great deals with safe Social Security. He reduced it, got rid of tax loopholes, lowered the rates, good uh, stuff with Northern Ireland nobody knew about. I didn't even know about at the time. And uh, backed up Reagan with Gorbachev ending the, the Cold War. He did all this. He did a lot of good stuff and fought most of the time. But um, in fact, I've got all my shenanigans in the book. I, li- I listed the, the numbers I pulled. And my favorite line when he'd go up to me and say, he may have only said this once to me, but I loved it. He said, is this one of yours? Because when I pulled some big protest or something, I organized it. He, 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 it looked like something I'd done. <laughs> so he knew my ability to organize things, create shows a force that uh, made the Democratic Party continue its cause.
0: It definitely seems like a tough job, a very intense job, but you talked about the numerous lessons of working for TIP, some of which include, you know, daily courage, commitment. And yeah. on that point that you just mentioned, the importance of two politicians, Reagan, um, as well as TIP, of both political parties sitting next to each other and finding common ground or, you know, good old bipartisanship. Um, do you think that's still true now, that bipartisanship is- Well, it has to be, to, Well, I don't want to-
2: wanna romanticize it too much, but I am romantic about it, I think there's urgent matters that have to be dealt with. Like we generally get along on wartime situations. Uh, Urgency of age. In this case, both these guys are in their last chapters. You know, I'm sure Biden feels urgency right now. I, I wish Mitch McConnell felt urgency about government and not so much about the next election. The trouble is when they think only about the next election. That's all they think about, it. That's, and that's that's no way to get anything done. And uh, but Tip knew we had to save Social Security. Reagan wanted the monkey off his back because the Democrats have been hitting him hard on it. Uh, I think uh, the Cold War spoke for itself. We were my generation. You know, we we know what it was like to hide under our desks when the Soviet long-range bombers were going to attack with nuclear weapons. Um, that was real, and. Uh, Getting in the Cold War was, was vital to get it over with, just get it over with. Unfortunately, we still have Putin, who is a Russian nationalist and a and a, uh, a big shot. And uh, he uh, he might as well be still a Soviet. He wants the Soviet Union back in many ways. But I think urgency is a big part of it. I think knowing you, you can't just keep futzing around with things that so you uh, we, we have a list of about five things everybody agrees we should do something with. Like, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a defunded police person, but I do believe you need to get, when we dial 911, we want a good cop to show up, a courageous cop, man or woman, a courageous person dedicated to their job. That's a hell of an ideal. And I don't want to hear people talk like that. They don't freaking talk like that. It isn't. It isn't that there's some bad behavior. That's obviously are going to deal with. But we absolutely have to have an ideal, which is a good cop who's willing to risk their lives for us in terrible situations, domestic thing. But I'm afraid we went so far in one direction. That if I were a cop today, I'd be talking to my spouse and she'd, she'd probably say to me, don't take any risks tonight. You know, you don't go into that club where everybody's drunk or strung out. They like, don't go into the domestic situation where the people are throwing frying pans at each other, knifing each other. Why would you go into a situation you try to avoid those situations? And I think the criminal people know that's what's going on. That's why this crime rates are spiking. I think the, the, the bad guys, and they are bad guys, are out there thinking the cops are on the, on the defensive now. We're gonna exploit it. We'll see. This takes a few months to be, to be sure of that. But I, I think we can, uh, we gotta be careful we don't go too much spending, we're gonna get inflation. That's what the media should be coming in. The media should be covering, yes, it'd be nice to pass some of these jobs bills and infrastructure. But there will be a danger here of overspending and getting into the Phillips curve, which is you get into spending, you're going to create excess demand. Too many dollars chasing too few goods and services, you're going to have inflation. It comes with the territory. And uh, the same with crime, if, if the police forces are hesitant or they fall back on their positions, they don't do their jobs. This is going to be a horror case, but we have to the media has to provide information on both guardrails. Look at every situation from both directions. Infrastructure is good, jobs are good. Too much spending, not good. Let's get it right. Uh, policing should be improved, it should be policed itself, but too tough on the cops? We're not going to have any good cops. Anymore. And uh, Doing their job. So I think nobody in the media does it like this. It's too easy to just say cops suck and they're bad and they're all racist and all or uh, we need these spending programs and all this stuff from Larry Summer's has to be ignored, you know. Well there's worry about inflation. <laughs> Are you so sure? You want to put some money on it?
0: You know, I, I want to ask you about the media because that's something that Jill tells me a lot about. You know, back in the Nixon era, there were three media networks that gave the same facts versus now we have social media and uh, these big networks giving, they, they can't even agree on facts. And I'm wondering how big of a role you think media has caused in kind of, kill, I don't, don't want to say killing bipartisanship, but kind of creating even more partisanship and kind of pushing people to the fringe.
2: Well, you know, in court, they, they, I mean, I'm not a lawyer like Jill, but I mean, Historically, you watch Perry Mason, you watch any court scene, and they always say, you're supposed to tell the truth, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. Find somebody in the media to meet that standard. The whole truth, and nothing but. No speculation, and the whole truth, not just a truth. I think there's a lot of people in the media that tell a truth. They tell facts, but with one side of how to interpret them. They'll use facts to make a point they already wanted to make, like economics professors, political science professors. They all have an ideological point when they go into the classroom and they find facts to back it up. They're not lying exactly, but they're not telling the whole truth. And they're telling things beyond the truth. They're telling things they think and feel, but they don't have the truth. And um, I think we should get back to that. I mean, Cronkite, Walter Cronkite and CBS was the most trusted man in America, not because he was... A liberal. He was a liberal. He told me that later on. And he was. You could tell his attitude would show up once in a while. But he was a reporter. I love reporters. They're out there today, like Robert Costa, Michael Schmidt, Michelle Sinder. These are people that come home after they've done their reporting and provide it to the audience. But they've reported. That's what they do. And it's so hard today to do that because even the New York Times is infiltrated now, spoiled, I think, by opinion. In the, in the A section it shouldn't be there, but it's hard today because you got somebody like Trump out there, it's not what, balance isn't the right answer because you can't balance truth against that, what he's saying. There's no golden mean between a lie and the truth. You can try to tell the truth. And, uh, but a lot of people, they just, they marshal their arguments using facts, but it is an argument they're making. It's not a report of the truth. And they act like Republicans are all no good. And all we need is a country run by progressives and everything will be great all we need is all progressives that's nonsense because this country we're run by progressives would have crime rates going up would have inflation going through up going up because there'd be nobody to restrain them
1: so chris with what you said about um the role of journalism let's talk about your shift into journalism yeah that started actually in print you became a writer for the san francisco examiner And so I'd like to ask you about that kind of transition to journalism and particularly to print, but also whether your experience in politics gave you better sources and more insight than some of your other colleagues and whether that helped you in your journalism career.
2: Well, I think you're right. What you suggest is true in both cases. I mean, I know uh, what it's like to be in a back room with a politician. I know what you think, sweat it out. They all think politicians have, huge, have Machiavelli genius. They don't, or they think that they're idiots. Neither are true. They, they, they think about a week ahead. While <laughs> politicians, they have, they have maybe a couple weeks ahead. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Biden's people, uh, Ron Klain is chief of staff and I'm thinking some other smart people around him are trying to calculate what this summer's going to look like and what they're going to get done by the end of this session, what they have to get done. How they're going to try to find their way to 60 votes? God help them for anything in the Senate. How do they find themselves to 50 votes for reconciliation, so that what well, they can pass through a simple partisan vote. Trying to get, knowing that if they don't get anything through, they're going to face an election next year where all it is going to be is the negatives: inflation, crime, and the border. If if they don't get anything through, the only conversation will be about crime, violent crime spiking. Inflation growing and a border out of control, open border. That's what the, I just read that today, but I, those are my big three. There's always a big three. Politicians know they can use against the other side. Uh, Mary Chotner figured this out in the 40s. People can only think of three things when they go into the voting booth. Make sure all three are about your opponent. Make sure all three are negative. It was communism, Korean corruption in 52. It was acid amnesty and abortion in 72. Now it's going to be, here it comes, 2022, inflation, crime, the border. They're going to to have enough to win with. And throw in all the woke stuff, too, and that will add a little icing to the cake. Uh, So uh, I I do think I benefit from the politics. I'm sympathetic to politicians because they have the guts to run for office. I do have that prejudice. I do respect politicians who just have the guts to put their name out there and run and find a way to get elected. Uh, that's networking, and uh, I. Uh, but I also think uh, there's a difference between writing columns with this opinion and my writing my sunny pieces, which were objective. David Broder used to do both. He would do opinion columns and also do a straight news reporting. It's so more people can do it. People are smart. People people don't have to be prejudiced. They don't want to be. This thing about you can't control your politics. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If, you have a, if you're sentient, if you know how your brain works, wait a minute. I'm not here pushing a case. I'm not here. To, it's that great line in Cider House Rules. What, what's your business here, right? Not a great line. They say, what's your business here? What are you doing here? I'm making apple cider to sell. You don't put cigarette butts into the, uh, into the, into the big pot. And I think if you're going to put cigarette butts into something, it's not, if you're going to spoil it with partisanship, it's not teaching. It's just arguing. Press releases. Sometimes I listen to some people in the air and I go, that's a press release from the DNC. Or the RNC. That's a press release. That's what they would type out if I were placking for one of those organizations. That's what a flack would write. Just knock it out and argue a case and ignore all other truths.
1: Going back to your career, some you, you mentioned, it. and I found this very interesting, that Roger Ailes was um the way you got onto cable TV. And that seems yeah. counterintuitive uh, to those of us on MSNBC.
2: Well, yeah, because next to he was a genius. He was a mad genius. You might say a bad one. It's certainly his personal behavior is awful. Monstrous. But he was the guy that figured out to uh, go on Dan Rather's show, if you're George Herbert Walker Bush, and say, yeah, all come on the show and talk about Iran-Contra if it's live television. This is how smart Roger was. Because once Rather got on that show, George Herbert Walker Bush said, you know, I was out of the loop. You can't judge a person's whole life by one incident. And by the way, I'd be like me judging you with the time you walked off the set during that tennis match. Remember, they'd Rather quit. He wouldn't do the broadcast because he's so angry because they delayed the CBS news because there was a, they were covering a tennis championship, someone big tournament. So he stuck it right to in live television, and that went right out the airways. And, and Dan Rather, who's a friend of mine, is back on his heels, looking like the bad guy. This is the kind of stuff Ailes knew how to do, you know. He could, he could just be smarter than the other side. Go live. You control the time if you go live. If you go in 60 minutes or something like that, they control because they edit. They have all the power in the world, television, once you have the tape machine.
1: You know? but how did he get you onto cable TV? What was the connection there?
2: Well, I, uh, I was with uh, Joe McGinnis, the writer. We'd go to my college, Holy Cross who had written Selling of the President, which Roger Ailes was a star in, about how Nixon got elected in 68, when Ailes was Nixon's guy, his media guy. And they, uh, I was having dinner with Joe at the Grill in Hollywood, in uh, Beverly Hills. And we were talking about a book he was writing about Teddy Kennedy, which he later wrote. And he said, why don't you join me afterwards for drinks on meeting a guy know really like over at uh, the Four Seasons Hotel. And also in Beverly Hills. He, I said, who's that? I said, Roger Ellis. I said, Roger Ellis is the enemy. I don't want to deal with him. But I went over and we had a beer or two. And I said, this guy, we hit it off. And I said, I wanted to do a fast-paced TV show, really fast. Half hour, the most exciting things that happened that week. Sports, entertainment, politics, world events. But only the most exciting stuff he had put into a capsule. And I wanted to be fast-paced and I want to narrate it. Put it on 11:30 Saturday night or Sunday night, just for people that don't want to watch television, but they want to know what's going on. Just some smart people that have very little time. So he worked on that idea, and as he was working up that idea, he got the job of heading up uh, MSNBC. Created MSNBC, Marcus Talking was called then, and CNBC. And uh, and I called him up. I said, "How about that show we're going to put on? <laughs> Remember that show we're going to put on, Roger?" So he gave it right over that. He gave me a six night, 5 five-night-a-week show called In Depth, which I co-anchored with Terry Anzer from LA. She's a professor, she was a real anchor woman at a meeting. She went to Stanford at the same time my wife did. And she uh, and we, we did the show like two hours a night. It was a lot of work, but we did the OJ trial almost every night. And uh, then he gave me my, my own show for a half hour on CNBC. And then, uh, and he had been sort of pushed out by then. And then that ended up, and then I had that, and I pushed to get there to MSNBC. So he played a big role in my life. He was always good to me, you know, and then I find out about what he'd been doing and, you know, it's terrible, monstrous behavior. You, you know, people don't talk about that to other people, generally. You know? That's my observation. They don't brag about being monstrous.
1: And, and was that show, the show ended up, of course, being hardball. Um, And which was a long, long running show you had. I remember your anniversary show. um, But in the end, and and you do talk about this, I've heard you uh, on air talking about the end of that show and your career at MSNBC uh, based on inappropriate comments that you made. Well, it
2: I mentioned, you say, I mean, inappropriate is right. That's accurate. I would also be taken as compliments. We're sitting in a makeup room. I'm going to make up chair. I sort of bark out, how come I haven't fallen in love with you yet to the person sitting next to me? Everybody heard it. Um, you know, the report was made. I was—I had no choice really to but to resign or retire. I just felt like I'm not going to go through this something, some sort of sanction that's going to keep me here in a dispute. Uh, I was 74 then. I'm 75 now. I said, you know, I might as well just retire rather than argue this case. And uh, everybody I know has a different view on it. So it's usually gender, not gender, it's usually age. People my age say, you know, compliments are inappropriate, but they're not the worst thing, you know. But younger people have a different view, but my daughter has a different view. She's a business person.
1: So well, what, gender, what so much advice much. would you give to others based on that particular experience
2: and your understanding from your daughter? Well, the rules are, the rules at NBC was no comment. Well, you know this, Jill, you're just, doing, you're just asking. Everybody knows this. Don't compliment people on their appearance, their dress. Don't say nice outfit. Don't sell that dress. Don't say anything, you're looking good today. The safe answer is don't say anything about appearance in the workplace. Now, I may go gone further than that and say, just don't make comments about appearance. Well, obviously, people are dating or their social friends, they make comments like that, and that's certainly up to them. But I, uh,
1: I think, oh, uh, well, obviously, don't break the rules. And don't break the rules that are the current rules is really what you're saying. Well, I, I, I
2: decided when this happened that I wasn't going to get on the, on the other side of the argument. I wasn't going to say I wasn't going to justify it. I, uh, I can certainly explain it in terms of my personality, which, you know, nobody's surprised that I would say something like that. And uh, certainly the makeup girl, makeup women at the time told the person who reported on me that that's just the way Chris is. That's the way I am but inappropriate. Some, I, I, I actually take serious. I, I don't want to make this light because it's not light. I, I am, from the time I started having any control over things, I really pushed. Like I insisted that my Sunday show, the Chris Matthews show, was always 50-50, gender gender-wise. Always the, 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 only person who's that, I said to we and Nancy Nathan, exactly we created the show. We said there will always be two men and two women on the show. Every single weekend. It's never going to change. We're not going to go Oh, somebody knows more. No, it's always going to be two and two. All my executive all the best executive producers, you know, Tina Urbanski and, and Clank, you know, they, they've been my top people and they've been the people I've trusted to run the show. So I have a big belief in my daughter, my wife was an anchor woman in DC for 15 years. I mean, I know the challenge of getting equality in the workplace and i pushed for it. But in this case of compliments, I obviously uh, complimented one person too many.
0: So, we want to end our show by taking this fully intergenerational. This is one thing I've really adored from your show, as well as your book, is that uh, you took your show a hardball to college campuses and got more students involved in politics. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about why you decided to do that, because that's not something that every anchor does, um, and why you think it's so critical. You thought it was so critical for young people to participate in your show directly.
2: First of all, it was great show business. It was great show business. I mean, show business. It was fun. It was staged well. We walk into a place. It took a lot of money to build these sets. In some cases, we had to build the sets like we did with Obama in Westchester University of Pennsylvania. I mean, you build the set. You get the high school, the college band to play. You get the cheerleaders there. They'll come out. And you get cheerleaders, and you get the excitement of a big football game. And you get the rah-rah spirit of the college, of college life. And you've kind of put that on television, but what you do to the students is you're bringing politics to them. And, you know, they're, they're, we did programs, you know, we, Arnold Schwarzenegger, we did a lot of the sort of colorful figures. Um, Jesse Ventura, you know, we did double up with him. These are popular, iconic figures, but we also did, my favorites were uh, John McCain and Clemson, and he's getting beat up down there with all these horrible ch- ch- charges against him by the Republican establishment. Saying that his daughter was his his adopted daughter from from uh, Bangladesh was his illegitimate, or his he had fathered her that she was part African American. Just awful, stupid things just to try to make him look like the bad guy down there, or that his wife was a drug person. Come on, I mean, he was that facing horrible stuff. But when that in that room with those kids, he was a rock star. They, when he walked into that, this war hero from Vietnam, this guy had been through it the worst. Those kids went wild for him, and uh, same when we took on the Villanova. I think we had in the second campaign when when he actually had the nomination, we had the biggest crowd he ever had at Villanova up in Pennsylvania. And, they, and the, the schools, I love the way the schools got into it. You know, they would they'd bring out the band, they'd bring out the cheerleaders. The kids were rah rah. I'd go out and do the warm up before the show and kid around with the kids and say, have my little quiz show I did for them. I was at a quiz show I did. I love doing it, and I did it exactly the way you said. It. We brought politics to them. We didn't ask to come to us; we brought it to them, and 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 we showed it could be fun, and fascinating. I wish we could I wish we could keep doing that forever. I would do that every day of my life, every week of my life. I could keep doing it. That's one thing I do miss.
0: I miss everything, but I miss the college kids. There really is no experience like going to like a political rally or or going. You know, I remember um, my my senior year. No, actually, my junior year. No. Sorry, my senior year. Yeah, my, my uh, AP government teacher took the whole class to the Iowa caucus. And like, it was something that my peers and I, we will never forget because it's a moment that like, young people get to experience politics and civics um, up front and close. And so um, that's something I appreciate about your.
2: Well, maybe you can help me write my next book because I think I want to write about civics and how to excite people who don't give a darn. Like, try to do, I'll try this with you now. So ask ask kids how do you how come you have to be 16 to drive a car? Who made that decision? How come you can be still technically drafted in this country? Who made that decision? Who made this decision you can't drink till you're 21? Who's making these decisions? How, your life is being controlled by people making laws about it. They're limiting you. Who's doing that? And how's that work? I just trying to find the state when I or it was the Vietnam War. You didn't have to ask. The federal government's going to draft you, <laughs> send you to Vietnam to fight a war. You know have any interest in fighting. So, uh, how do you get people to get interested in something they're not naturally interested? You, we started this discussion today talking about how I was naturally interested in politics. Well, maybe other kids are interested in sports and they know the third string quarterback on the Browns. Or, you know, <laughs> some people are interested in things I can't believe what they know about. You know, how come Jimmy Rollins, does he get a three-year contract or a five-year contract? The second baseman, I don't care, but be, people do. Uh, so how do you get them to make that kind of me- mental and emotional commitment in politics? I mean, if you're a person of minority, if you're a minority, a person of color, you've got an issue right there. And you go, you know, my rights aren't really being observed in this country. I'm not really being included. What can we do about that? Uh, how do I get equality out there again, real equality? So you know, there's some people have a natural. If you're a woman and you're very concerned about uh, being denied rights and opportunities and equal pay. There's another incentive to get involved. If you care about abortion one way or the other, pro-life, uh, pro-choice, pro that's an issue. If you're a gun owner, you bet your do- bottom dollar the gun owners are. My brother's one of them. That's the only issue he votes for, guns. He has his guns. And he doesn't want anybody taking them away. So uh, how, about, how do we get normal people involved in politics? <laughs> I mean, not gun owners, but people that have other interests, whether it's just a better country. How do to get people involved. They just want a better country, better on civil rights, and human rights, better on uh, equal chances. Uh, get those good people involved. The climate, in your generation has grabbed a lot of people's interest. The Sunrise Movement. That's worked. It, it defeated a Kennedy in
0: Massachusetts. You know, if I can say one last thing, I know Jill might have some more comments, but I, in terms of civics, I was fortunate enough to have this one. Teacher who brought us to the Iowa caucus, and his motto was basically um, making civics a lifestyle. That you know, civics isn't something that's just in the classroom. He really strived to get civics and this idea of participating in democracy outside of the classroom. And like every single one of his students just experienced this attachment to civics and experiencing it. And
2: it, the email that you guys, that person's addressed to me. I, I, that's one of the people I want to get to because I have a, history, a friend of mine teaches down in Tampa, high school. He teaches like international baccalaureate and dance place and all that stuff you're into, And he, uh, I keep saying, I got it. There's got to be, a, like Samuelson in economics, what is that for political science? There doesn't seem to be, a canon of knowledge that can be imparted to people in two in two in two you know semesters. I'd like to do one semester on running for office and one semester on governing. I haven't figured that far. <laughs> but I, I, I would love to uh, write the Samuelson book next, the book that everybody uses.
1: Exactly. Well, you've heard Networking in Action right here with uh, a connecting Victor's civics teacher to Chris Matthews and Victor to Chris in writing his next book. And if you include a chapter about women and their rights, I'm with you too. So. Um, I think networking, we've proved its value, and we thank you so much for having taken the time to be with us and being patient with the technical glitches, and thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. much. It's been been—it's been an honor. Thank you so much. So, Victor, I loved that interview. Uh, Chris Matthews was an incredible guest, and I want to talk a little bit more about his point about networking and how it played a part in his career and uh, maybe share some of the times that it's helped in my career. I mean, I got my first job at the Department of Justice because I happened to meet uh, someone who worked in the Department of Justice. I got my great job at um, Motorola because I got introduced to the CEO by a very dear friend and my job at CPS, the Chicago Public Schools, because another friend introduced me to Arnie Duncan, who was the superintendent and um i know that recently i've been able to help you with some networking so maybe you can share that experience
0: no i mean just hearing your career and how networking has played a huge part has been so beneficial for me as someone who i guess has only had two three years of actual work experience but um i'm currently working or interning for the better government association which is uh, a organization that jill is a Channel, or she's a board member of, and it's been such a great experience. And I think just going back to that importance of networking, I think it's something that young people don't really learn. And for me personally, it's something that I learned um, my junior year of high school. Um, I was in my AP junior language class, which is like an English class. And basically it was the summer before we all had to apply for colleges. And um, the te- this teacher was probably the most transformational teacher I had. And she gave us a sheet of how to talk to people about recommendation letters and how to ask people for uh, connections and also uh, just to ask them for this recommendation letter. And her biggest piece of advice was don't email them, talk to them face-to-face uh, because it's much harder to say no in person than it is via email. And so a lot of her lessons stuck with me and, and just now being with Jill and learning just the intricacy, then also just how to connect with people on a deep level and kind of network with them has been um, an amazing thing. And I think it's something that Chris Matthews really captured in... Um, Our episode today.
1: Exactly. And I think one of the things people don't know about networking is that it is a continuous process. It's getting to know people and staying in touch with them and doing favors for them, thinking of them, sending them notes saying, I thought you might be interested in this. Uh, I actually got my job at MSNBC because someone I met when I was writing my book sent me a note about taking a class in how to write an op-ed. And I took that class and as a result of that, I was noticed by MSNBC. So all of these things really play out and it is a two-way street. It's something that you must do and opportunities are out there that you will never know about except through this process.
0: Right. And one of the things that he said during the interview was just getting to know your college friends and staying in touch with your college friends. And I must say, that's probably the one thing I, I missed the most about this first freshman year it was all via Zoom. And I, I met maybe two or three people. And I, I really can't wait to go back on campus and follow Chris's advice of just getting to know people. And then after graduating, staying in touch with them um, because you never know who, what might happen or, or what opportunities might arise because of your um, network. And so I think it's important, like Jill said, this is a continuous process not just something that you do once and then um you know it's the end of it
1: well i hope our audience has learned from that little discussion and that they enjoyed the conversation on all the topics that we had with chris matthews
0: i guess if i can ask one question jill just for our younger listeners um because you've had such an illustrative career what advice would you give young people on how to talk with people because because like we've said, this isn't something that you learn in school. And none of my other classes taught me how to talk with other people. And so I'm wondering how you do it and how young, how that, I guess, should be approached in um, a classroom setting. Well,
1: one thing I would say in terms of networking particularly is the, if you have a goal in mind, share it and be specific. It's very hard when someone contacts me and says, I'd like to brainstorm with you um if someone calls and says i know that you're on the board of the better government association and i see that they have internship programs and i would love you to introduce me to them for that purpose that's easy for me to do if you call and just say i'm thinking that i would like to change careers and i don't know exactly what i want to do that's a, a harder process so being forthright and candid and clear, but having a real goal definitely helps the person that you're asking for help. Tell them what you want them to do and tell them you know their experience and how it can help you. That would be my biggest advice in terms of being successful. And then follow up. Let the person know that it worked. Call them and say, I got the job. Thank you very much. Because otherwise they're not motivated to help you a second time. So that's, I think those are the two key things in networking.
0: Yeah, I think um, especially having gone through the college application process, one of the things that that teacher also said is have a real relationship with who you're asking favors for. Because the one thing that she hates the most is getting a call from a parent or um, having a student who maybe talked to her once ask her for a favor. It's like, you know, do I really know you? So have that relationship as well, I think has been beneficial, at least for me to hear it.
1: Now, I get a lot of requests from total strangers saying, my cousin is doing this. Would you write a letter of recommendation? Uh, I don't know your cousin. I can't say anything. If I wrote an honest letter, it would say, I know a relative of this person and they're very fine, but that's not going to help student, they would be wasting the letter of recommendation. I know that also as an employer, that if I got a recommendation from someone who clearly had no working knowledge, it would not be effective. It would be a waste and would probably be a negative factor. So keep that in mind as well. Only ask people who you actually have worked with and who actually know your capabilities.
0: I hope for anyone who's in their college years like me or anyone who's just graduated from college that um, they'll take this conversation and your career as well as Chris's career and how networking has been beneficial and apply it to their lives as well.
1: And take a chance, go for that adventure, as Chris said. I've enjoyed our conversation, Victor, and I've loved talking to Chris Matthews. I hope our audience has too. And that you'll listen and follow us and come back for the next episode, which is a guest that. Chris mentioned Joe Kennedy, who lost the race for Senate.